Hey everyone, technically you're getting two days in history today because we're running two episodes from the History Vault. Hope you enjoy. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to This Day in History class, where we learn a smidgen of history every day. The day was March 1st, 1932. Anne Lindbergh, the wife of famed aviator Charles Lindbergh, was at home with 20-month-old Charles Lindbergh Jr. and the baby's nurse, Betty Gow. Charles Lindbergh Sr. was in New York, away on business. Normally, the family would spend weekends at their country home near Hopewell, New Jersey, and weekdays at Anne's parents' home in Inglewood, New Jersey. But Anne did not want to have to travel with little Charles, who was sick. So on this Tuesday, Charles Jr. was at home being nursed back to health, and the baby was getting better. But by the end of the night, things had taken a turn for the worse. Anne and Betty put Charles Jr. to sleep. But when Betty went to check on him after dinner, he wasn't there. Charles Jr. had been kidnapped. The events that followed would make for a tragic story that captivated the public for years to come. Charles Lindbergh became famous for making the first solo nonstop flight across the Atlantic when he flew from New York to Paris on a plane called the Spirit of St. Louis. The flight took 33 and a half hours from May 20th to 21st, 1927. But once he landed, he was quite literally an overnight celebrity. Before the trip, Lindbergh had been a U.S. airmail pilot. He had just wanted the $25,000 prize that was offered to anybody who could make the transatlantic flight. But after that famous trip, Lindbergh, just 25 years old, was in the international spotlight. He wasn't completely comfortable with the newfound attention, but his life was changing regardless. He started getting endorsements and traveling for speaking engagements. And eventually, he met his future wife, Anne Morrow, in Mexico, where her father was serving as the U.S. ambassador. Anne and Charles married in 1929, and Anne gave birth to their first child, Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr., on June 22, 1930. But the media still didn't give the family a break. The couple valued their privacy, and they built a big house on a nice chunk of land in Hopewell, New Jersey. They raised the child in New Jersey, spending time at their rural home in Hopewell on the weekends and Anne's parents' house in Inglewood during the week. But when that fateful day came, the family had decided to switch up their routine to make sure baby Charles was taken care of. Charles Jr. was recovering from his sickness on March 1st, 1932, but Nurse Betty and Anne were still tending to him. Around 7.30 p.m., the two women rubbed lotion on the baby's chest, then tucked him into bed. And when Betty came back to check on him around 30 minutes later, nothing was wrong. Charles Sr. came back home around 8.20 and soon after ate dinner with his wife. But when Betty went to check on the baby again around 10 p.m., little Charles was not in his crib 
and nowhere to be seen. Betty checked to make sure neither Charles Sr. nor Anne had him, but they didn't. So they went into panic mode. Charles Sr. rushed to the child's room where he found a ransom note demanding $50,000 on the windowsill. He then went outside with his gun and found a broken ladder beneath the child's window, as well as a baby blanket. So they called the police. And when the police came, they found evidence of the kidnapper's presence. There was mud on the nursery floor, footprints beneath the window, a chisel that was probably used to open the window, and then the ransom note. Because of the way the note was written, including the fact that the dollar signs were after the monetary amounts, police thought the note had to have been written by somebody European. But there was no blood or fingerprints at the scene of the crime, and the hunt for a perpetrator had a long way to go. The public already had its eye on the Lindberghs, but the kidnapping just took that to the next level. The search for baby Charles was on, and the family was getting a ton of press. They were getting so much attention that the kidnappers sent two more ransom notes, one of which raised the stakes to $70,000. Communicating and negotiating with the kidnapper proved difficult. But in a lucky break, a Bronx resident named Dr. John Condon stepped up to say he would act as an intermediary between the kidnapper and the Lindberghs, protecting identities in the process. The two parties agreed, and Condon met with the kidnapper twice, both times at a cemetery. After getting the baby's pajamas in the mail on March 16th, he believed he had sufficient proof that the baby was alive to hand over the ransom money. And on April 2nd, Condon handed $50,000 over to the kidnapper, though a lot of that money was gold certificates. In return, the kidnapper gave Condon a note that said the baby was on a boat off the coast of Massachusetts. But baby Charles wasn't found on a boat. On May 12th, a man found the body of a child about four miles away from the Lindbergh house. The skull was fractured and the body was decomposed. That child was Charles Jr., who had likely died the night he was kidnapped. In June 1932, Congress passed the Federal Kidnapping Act, which made kidnapping across state borders a federal crime punishable by death. And in September 1934, police arrested an undocumented German carpenter named Bruno Hauptmann, who had thousands of dollars worth of the gold ransom certificates, among other incriminating items. His trial lasted for more than five weeks in early 1935, and he was found guilty, sentenced to death, and later executed. But he never confessed to the kidnapping. Some people have claimed that it was a conspiracy. Others have said that Hauptmann was innocent and that someone else, maybe even Charles Lindbergh himself, was the true culprit. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you'd like to know more about the kidnapping, listen to the episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class called The Disappearance of the Lindbergh Baby. We started this month off with a pretty sad story 
but the whole month won't be that way. Throughout the month of March, on Sundays, we'll be recognizing Women's History Month by bringing on special guests to talk about women in history and the contributions that they've made to society. If there's something that I missed in an episode, you can share it with everybody else on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at T-D-I-H-C Podcast. Come back tomorrow for another tidbit from history. Hey y'all, I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, where we uncover a new layer of history every day. The day was March 1st, 1790. Congress authorized the first census of the entire United States. Among other provisions, Article 1, Section 2 of the U.S. Constitution required the federal government to conduct a survey of the U.S. population every 10 years. That way, Congress could determine how many representatives would come from each state and how federal resources would be divided among states. The Census Act passed during the second session of the first Congress and was signed by President George Washington on March 1, 1790. The act called for the omission of Native Americans who were not taxed. It called for marshals to distinguish free people from everyone else and to distinguish the sex and color of free people. The act provided for the census, or enumeration as it called it, to begin on the first Monday in August and end within nine calendar months. As planned, the first census began on August 2, 1790. The census was conducted in the original 13 states, as well as the districts of Kentucky, Maine, Vermont, and the Southwest Territory, or present-day Tennessee. Because Vermont was not admitted to the Union until March of 1791, the census didn't take place there until after it became a state that year. The process was supervised by the marshals of the judicial districts, and they hired assistant marshals to act as census takers. There were 17 marshals and an estimated 650 assistant marshals. The assistant marshals made two copies of the returned survey, one to post in the neighborhood for public knowledge and another given to the marshal to be forwarded to the president. The census included six questions, the name of the head of the household, as well as the number of people in each household who fit into five categories. Those categories were free white males age 16 and older, free white males under age 16, free white females, all other free people, and slaves. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, the distinction of the age of free white males was to, quote, assess the country's industrial and military potential. Census takers determined the race of the people they counted. They did that by considering how people were viewed in their community or based on ideas about so-called black blood. Enslaved people were counted as three-fifths of a person, and Native Americans weren't counted until 1870. The category of mulatto was added in 1850, and other multiracial categories were added in later years. People could choose their own race starting in 1960. The total population based on the 1790 census was counted as 3.9 million non-Native American people. That number included around 700,000 enslaved people. Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson and other officials believed that number was too low. There were people who opposed the census for religious reasons or because they thought it was related to increasing taxation. 
the cost of the entire census came in at $44,377. census records from several states have since been lost, possibly destroyed when the British burned the capital in Washington during the War of 1812. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If there's something I missed in the show today, you can let us know at T-D-I-H-C podcast on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can also email us at thisday at iheartmedia.com. I truly hope you enjoyed today's show. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.